0: Here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Have you ever had social anxiety? Are you scared, actually terrified (laughs) of standing up and talking in front of others? Most of us are. As someone for whom the mere thought of speaking to others, let alone speaking in public, provoked visceral dread, today's special guest, Marcus Bale's journey from socially anxious child to award-winning professional speaker is testament to the effectiveness of the techniques he's learned and perfected and now shares with others as a professional speaker and coach. He has conquered his anxiety so thoroughly He even once won a rap by Flava Flav and Kevin from The Office. His upcoming book, Don't Shut Up, a collection of stories and advice on how to overcome social anxiety, which just came out, is a compilation of Marcus's own experience growing up with and eventually overcoming debilitating social anxiety, as well as tried and true tips and techniques for anyone struggling with this incredibly common disorder. Welcome, Marcus.
1: Hi, Randy, thank you so much for having me on today.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for being my guest. Uh, okay, so so just so we can really relate to you, <laughs> tell us about your past and, and tell us what um, difficulties you had as a child?
1: Absolutely. So uh, as a child and and even still a little bit to this day, uh, I've suffered from severe social anxiety my entire life. Uh, It really started, you know, in my early adolescence, you know, going to school, not being able to connect with my classmates. And, you know, the older you get, the, the higher the stress level becomes in those interactions. And it actually got to the point where it wasn't just my interpersonal skills that were affected. It was also my education that was affected. And my my speaking became so bad. And I was so nervous to speak in front of others that I couldn't read out loud to my classmates or to my teachers. And that got me labeled as a special needs student. And I was placed in special reading classes where I was constantly monitored for improvement which only heightened the anxiety. It wasn't until the end of sixth grade that my mother became leery of that diagnosis uh, when she saw me reading a book to my younger brother before bed. And she went to my teacher and said, hey, I don't think he can't read. I think he just might be nervous. We should give him a silent reading test. And that's exactly what they did. And I scored right within the normal range for my grade And even at such an early age, that moment was kind of an epiphany, saying, maybe I should overcome this. Maybe if I became a better speaker, I wouldn't get left behind. And that was really the start of my journey to want to overcome my social anxiety. And it's been a long, bumpy road throughout that entire, you know, over 20 years now, and... Throughout that time, I've learned a lot about myself, a lot about social anxiety. I've studied individuals with social anxiety and eventually became a professional speaker, uh, you know, specializing in social anxiety.
0: You know, that's so amazing. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. Um, Some of us have anxiety. They don't have anxiety anxiety when it comes to social situations, but they have anxiety when they're put on the spot. And um, so are there different levels of social anxiety that people have?
1: Uh, Of course, like many other aspects of being human, it's a spectrum and you could be on any part of that spectrum uh, at any point in time. So I've run into many people who are incredibly confident interpersonal speakers, they can talk to one or two other people, maybe even entertain a small group of five people. But the second that they're put in front of a large group, 10, 15 people, and they're the center of attention, they freeze. And that's just their level of social anxiety. I feel everyone deals with it at some point on that spectrum. And it is okay, wherever you're at, the, the goal is to understand that you can move yourself around that spectrum and become a better speaker, uh, whether it's just with one person or whether it's with thousands. So being able to understand that though maybe you are confident with, you know, interpersonal communication, if you have those same fears in large groups, that is still a form of social anxiety and, and there are ways to get better.
0: Hmm. Okay. You know, what I find is that, that when I have that um, fear of the social anxiety, fear of speaking to large groups, um, my greatest fear is that I'm not going to remember anything. And then I get sort of my brain sort of freezes. Is that common? Yeah, it's the same
1: feeling you get from test anxiety. So if you've ever gone into a test for, for school and you studied all night and you crammed for the test and then you know the answer, but you start to second-guess yourself. Your knowledge doesn't change, but the situation does. It's your confidence in that knowledge. and The same thing happens when you're speaking in front of others. Because there's no back and forth happening like there would in a, you know, a person-to-person conversation, You don't have the same safety net. So when you're up in front of others, your confidence in your own knowledge begins to weaken. And a lot of the same techniques you would use to overcome test anxiety can be used to overcome stage fright. Uh, And being able to give yourself that reassurance that you do know these facts. You do know what you want to talk about. And a lot of that comes down to planning. You know, we can't just jump on stage without a plan. We need to understand what we wanna talk about, the order in which we wanna talk about it, and have some form of structure. Being able to structure it like a a song with a cadence allows you to remember those facts and those points more uh, confidently. So then you don't have to worry about, oh, what was I gonna say next? And that's when those feelings really start to increase is when you don't know where you're going. So now you're not only worried about being in front of others, you're worried about where you're going next, what points you're gonna make. So being able to have that plan, just like with test anxiety, is gonna increase your confidence in that knowledge because you do know those facts. You are a confident person. It's just when you're put on the spot, it begins to change your own perspective of yourself.
0: Very interesting. So there are ways to learn how to do this. And obviously you did. Um, so your your book is broken up into different kinds of um, social anxiety. And um, let's see, the language, oh, there was something I marked here. Oh, okay. This is, this is, this I, I found really interesting because it's something I've talked about um, but I like the way you say it. You said that there's this psychological phenomenon called the spotlight effect, which was coined by psychologist, um, Gil Gilovich, Medvec and Savitsky Siv- in the late 1990s. But this is the tendency we have to believe that our actions are noticed more than they truly are. And so we might, you say we might perceive, um, a slight mess up as a glaring mistake when the other party didn't even notice. And this is called, um, the concept is called illusion of transparency. So that is the tendency to for people to ever overestimate the degree to which others know their mental state. So what happens when we do make mistakes? Is there a way to do this so that we don't feel like we've just blown the whole thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, I love those two phenomenons so much because, though it's something most people experience, it it has some profound effects on our own mental state, uh, and the best way that I have found to overcome the spotlight effect, and you know, in turn, the illusion of transparency is to actually use a phenomenon that I myself witnessed and have coined the hits and misses effects. And the hits and misses effect is something that I observed in my time as a casino party host, where I would jump from table to table, interacting with thousands of people a night on a more personal level. So I'd talk to two to five people at once. So it was more interpersonal communication. And I'd have to come up with new conversation starters, prolong conversations and build rapport hundreds of times a night at these different tables. And what I found was that when I would make a mistake, a miss as I call it, nobody even really noticed. Their body language wouldn't change very much, their facial expressions, they wouldn't engage in the conversation. But when I made a hit, a piece of information that they resonated with, that got them engaged, They would shift their bodies. They would speak up. Their eyes would would widen. They would have a smile on their face. And as I watched these hits and misses thousands of times a night, I began to understand that when I made a mistake, a miss, hardly anybody noticed. And I began to look at those nonverbal signals to tell my brain, hey, we think we made a mistake. But the people at the table didn't even notice it. They didn't even shift their gaze. So maybe we shouldn't be so nervous. So a lot of the uh, kind of training to overcome the spotlight effect and in turn the illusion of transparency is to actually just watch who you're talking to, watch your audience, and see their nonverbal signals. And that's going to help tell your brain Hey, they're so wrapped up in their own internal monologue that they didn't even notice your own mistake. We forget that other people have a stream of consciousness as well, and we think that we're kind of the center of the universe. That other person has the same string of thoughts in their head. They're also worried about, oh my God, did that person notice that I just, you know, uh, I, I just said a word wrong? Did they notice that I'm standing weird? What am I supposed to do with my hand? We're all thinking these thoughts. So as you watch the other party, you can begin to notice that they don't even really notice when a mistake happens. And once you know that and you're consciously looking out for it, it's going to quell those feelings of anxiety in the brain because now there's evidence to support that they didn't even notice the mistake. So that's that was my kind of own own way of overcoming that illusion of transparency and the spotlight effect through this very strange phenomenon that I I witnessed night after night uh, as a casino party host.
0: That's really amazing. Um, and the mistakes would they have? If someone was really tuning in, would they have noticed it? I mean, this was were these mistakes something that? were Pretty obvious, but people just kind of brushed right off?
1: Absolutely. So if if you recorded it on a video and you played it back as a movie, people would go, man, that's really clunky dialogue. That was a really awkward. But we forget that life is not a movie. Nobody is sitting there watching you like they would a film. They're more passive in the interaction. And they're going to give you a lot more leeway. In every conversation, most people make mistakes probably every minute because that's just how we talk. We make mistakes and we correct ourselves and the conversation flows. So most people understand this and we kind of tune it out. It becomes our blind spot. We just let things kind of go because, again, we're all wrapped up in our own internal thoughts that we're not paying as much attention like we would in a movie. But if you recorded some of my interactions with uh with pretty big misses, the audience would be going, Wow, look at look at this idiot. What is he doing? <laughs> but the people in, in my conversations rarely even notice.
0: That's incredible. Um in chapter five you talk about the language of your body. Um so People can pick up on that though. If you're if you're feeling nervous and and what are the kind of things that we do when we're nervous? That show the
1: Yeah, the main thing people do when they're nervous is they start to limit reassuring gestures. So reassuring gestures are small details in our body language that show the other person that we are an active part in the conversation. Reassuring gestures are found in all aspects of the animal kingdom. Dogs are a great example. When a dog approaches another dog and they want to play, they will usually bow. They'll bow their head and they'll they'll extend their front paws. This is a reassuring gesture showing that they don't want to fight. They're not aggressive. They want to play. And just like dogs, humans also use reassuring gestures. But ours aren't bowing most of the time. They're going to be things like eye contact smiling, head nods, body angles, and all of these reassuring gestures are going to give the other person comfort and show that you're an active part of the conversation. So when people are nervous, they tend to avoid some of these reassuring gestures, and it's involuntary. They're not actively trying to snub someone. They are simply nervous, so they begin to pull back on some of them which can end conversations fairly quickly. The, the basic example that everybody can relate to is eye contact. When we're nervous, we rarely make eye contact, which is kind of a, a big problem, especially in new conversations, because eye contact is the most important gesture we have. It allows the, the other person to relate to you. It draws them into the conversation. So when you kind of lower your head and you' you're looking off in another direction, it feels impersonal to the other person. And that's one of the biggest things that I see among socially anxious people is a lack of eye contact, which shortens the length and depth of the conversation, which can only reinforce those negative feelings that we have about our own speaking ability.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's really great information. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, I notice that I'll get breathless and my voice will quiver. And is that a common experience that people have?
1: Absolutely. It's, it's one of the main aspects of stage fright. Uh, and it's because your body is flooded with endorphins and it doesn't know what to do. You know, it, it's right in that fight or flight response. And you are so hopped up on adrenaline and other endorphins that you're going to start breathing heavier. Your heart's going to pound. And with all that excess energy, it may start to make your voice change as well. You might stutter. You may, you know, be able to, you know, not get the words out in the manner that you would like. And that's all because of those endorphins that are flooded into your body. So it's a very common stress response.
0: Okay. And so all these things that we're talking about that so many of us experience <clears throat> there are methods to work around these. Of course. You're you're a perfect example that there's <laughs> um that this can all be worked through. And you also talk about um I mean you you really talk about every kind of relationship, but I wanted to go into um Practice. What? Okay. So you talk, you say practice, 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 which you just said. Um, You say there are six steps to start any conversation. So, so now let's take it away from the stage and more interpersonal. What are the six steps that are conversation starters?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I love my six-step approach because it really breaks down kind of a complex interaction into its most basic elements, and it really all starts with observing. So you want to look around. You want to see if there's anyone you can relate to because starting a conversation with someone that you know nothing about is a lot more difficult than someone you can find a small aspect to relate to. So observe. Look around, especially if you're at a a larger gathering, like a party, a work function, a conference. Look around and see if you can identify with anyone. Once you see a, a group or a person that has an identifying characteristic, maybe they're wearing a shirt with your favorite band on it, that could be your in. So step number two, after you've observed, is to find your in. An in is a piece of information about the other person that you can relate to. It allows you to enter the conversation, hence why I call it the in. So for this example, let's say they're wearing your, fa- your band uh, t-shirt. That's your in. You now have a piece of information that you can enter the conversation. Now that you have your in, you can create your empathic statement. An empathic statement comes from the root word empathy which is to share the feelings of others, which is exactly what we want to do when starting a conversation. You want the other party to feel like you understand them, even if at a basic level. So when you create that empathic statement, it should usually use them as the subject and be you know, maybe like a compliment on that in that you found. So for this example, you're going to approach and you want to talk about their T-shirt. You could say, hey, I love your, you know, Nirvana T-shirt. Uh, and they're going to say, oh, awesome, do you like the band? Or, you know, whatever they might respond with. So the next step is to listen. After you deliver, you're going to listen to their response. And this is going to give you more information that you can use throughout the conversation. So let's say you go off, you deliver <laughs> your empathic statement. I, hey, I love your Nirvana t shirt They say, hey, yeah, it's my favorite band. Now you know that it's their favorite band. You also like Nirvana. It's time for the final step, which is to create a personal question. So you've already opened up the conversation. Now you want to keep it going. You want to keep that momentum. So instead of just kind of generally talking about vague subjects, you can ask them a personal question that's maybe a bit more than, hey, how's the weather today? So in this, we know that uh, that Nirvana is their favorite band, so let's ask them a question that is personal to them. You could say something like, oh, what's your favorite song? Now they can respond with something a bit more insightful than, oh, how's the conference going? How's the weather? They've, They've opened up to you with even more information. And now the conversation is flowing. You know a little bit more about them, and you can keep that momentum going. So I find that if you can get through those first six steps, the conversation can then begin to flow naturally because you're on common ground. So those are my kind of six steps to starting any conversation uh, in, in any situation
0: I think the real that's really practical information um, really good information it, because it is hard to start conversations I mean I don't have trouble with that um, in social situations. I don't have problems with one-on-one or anything like that, um, you know. But a lot of people do. A lot of people don't know where to begin, and they just kind of stand around and feel like, you know, like a wallflower. Like the, and and they stand, they feel like they stand out, and they're so obvious because they're not mingling. Um, so I think that's really really good advice. Uh, In chapter four, you talk about likability. So you say what you might be thinking, what if I try all this stuff and people still don't like me? Okay. So what happens if if we try all this stuff and people just don't like us? What's going on? Why don't people like us?
1: So. It's probably a combination of things, and there are a bunch of actions that humans do all the time that make them less likable. And most of the time, they're completely unconscious. So we're just doing them out of habit. We don't even think about it. But by doing so, we are giving the wrong message to the other person, and it can create a situation where we are less likable. You know, some examples are emotional hijacking, humble bragging, uh, gossiping is a big problem. Uh, And then, uh, you know, other things like snubbing uh, can all make you less likable. And I talk about in that chapter, you know, many of the examples, and it's by no means an exhaustive list, but it really comes down to a lack of empathy. All of those traits, all of those actions at their core lack empathy towards the other person. And they're really, you know, kind of all about you. And a conversation is not all about you. There's always someone else there. So by doing those actions that focus attention on you and make you feel seen and make you feel good, you're taking away from someone else. So by removing those those actions and those traits that uh, may be a bit selfish, you can begin to increase your likability because the conversation is a reciprocal. You want to make sure that the other party is participating as much, if not more than you.
0: Okay. What is um, humble bragging?
1: Humble bragging is actually something that that I suffered with uh, many, many years ago. And it's the tendency to brag about oneself in a self-deprecating manner. So an example would be if you're really fit, you, you, know, you exercise a lot, you're very fit, and you make comments like, oh, my God, I'm so fat. That's a self-deprecating comment that is actually a, a brag because you know that you're fit. Everybody can see that you're fit, but you don't want to openly say, hey, look how fit I am. So instead you say, oh, my God, I'm so fat, to draw attention to you And how fit you are. Doing so, not only are you bragging, but you're also being deceitful, which can come across as incredibly arrogant and egotistical. So you have kind of a double whammy. Not only did you brag when you thought you didn't, you also were deceitful, which most people find, you know, distasteful. So that's that's one that I see a lot in people who are insecure. So obviously, if you have social anxiety, you probably have some insecurities, as most people do. And one way we try to cover that up is through getting reassurance from others. And oftentimes, we use tactics like humble bragging to elicit that, those positive comments. Uh, but oftentimes, it, it has a, an adverse reaction and makes us less likable in the process.
0: Yeah, I know people that do that, (laughs) Uh, and you know I'm sure we can all think of someone. Yes, (laughs) I have someone in mind. Um, (laughs) so I work with um, narcissistic abuse, and um, actually, narcissists kind of use this. They they use it to get attention. They use to use it to solicit attention by. Saying something negative about themselves. Oh, you don't love me, you know. Oh, you don't love me, because they really want to hear you say, Oh, yes, I do. Why would you say that? How, you know, what can I do to show you? I, I thought I've shown you, (laughs) and we go overboard trying to make up for that. And then, lo and behold, they get their narcissistic supply. So. So it's, that's kind of um, one of the things it reminds me of. It's really, your chapter six, Getting Toned, is a really interesting chapter because you have a sentence that you say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven times the same sentence, and it has different meanings. Do you remember what that sentence is, or, or do you want me to um, repeat it?
1: I never said she stole my money.
0: Yes, there you go. <laughs> is that go? the okay. one? <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. So so how does how does the inflection change the the meaning of that sentence?
1: Yeah, so inflection is an incredibly powerful tool, and it's one aspect uh, of tone that I call emphasis. You're emphasizing a specific word. And what it does is it begins to change the meaning of your statement. So that that sentence, I never said she stole my money, seems pretty straightforward. But I'll give two examples for the listeners, and you'll see a distinct difference in the meaning. I never said she stole my money. In that sentence, it's clear that they're trying to say they never said that, but they're implying that someone else did. The emphasis is on themselves, and it implies that someone else said they stole their money, but it wasn't them. Let's change the emphasis to the second word. I never. Said she stole my money. We have uh, the same sentence, but this time it, it implies that they never said they, that she stole their money, and they don't imply that anyone else did. So hmm. Even just changing it from the first word to the second word, you have two drastically different kind of underlying points. The first sentence is saying that somebody else said it, and the second is saying that nobody ever said it.
0: And the third sentence, you emphasize said. So I never said she stole my money. So in other words, um, that's kind of gaslighting, you know, because if you have said it, you know, I never said that.
1: A- exactly. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. You know, each one giving a different meaning of the same sentence.
0: Hmm. Very cool. That's, that's so cool. Um, let's see everything is okay so um, you talk about funny versus serious formal versus casual respectful versus irreverent enthusiastic versus matter of fact where would this apply in conversation
1: yeah so all of those are aspects of what I call uh the, the underlying intent of the conversation. So it, it's actually a, a famous study uh, done by the Nielsen Norman Group. And it was looking at software user interfaces and the tone that was used in them. So each one of those, each four, is a different dimension of tone. And then they have you know six opposing sides. So when we're looking at the way we word something, the words that we choose, we can make something funny or serious. We can make it formal or casual, respectful or irreverent, and enthusiastic or matter-of-fact. And then we can choose any combination of those six to create a sentence. And that gives an underlying intent of our words, uh, which kind of culminates with the other aspects of tone, to give a give the clarity of our message. Hmm.
0: OK, this is so interesting, Marcus. <clears throat> um, you, you've obviously studied this for years. I mean, you really have kind of every detail, <laughs> every every little um, bit of this topic, you, you know, everything. Um, so why is it important that we improve our speaking ability. Um, Should we all really work on this?
1: Absolutely. And the number one reason is to improve the quality of our lives. And whether you want to learn to speak to thousands of people or you want to learn to just speak to one, having better communication skills improves your life in so many different ways. Think about how many relationships you have that could be better with better communication skills, whether that's with family or friends or, or maybe relationships with romantic partners. The better the communication, the more freedom you have to express yourself properly, the better those relationships are going to be. And as we all know, it is the relationships we have throughout our lives that really make it worth living. Not all the stuff we have it's not the hours we put into our work it's the people we meet along the way and you can create better relationships better conversations and better experiences when you become a better speaker even if it's just small incremental milestones like i did for the, you know for the last couple of decades and as you do so you're going to find that you there's more opportunities there's more uh, fun experiences and there's more happiness that follows when you become a better speaker. So a lot of people think, well, I don't need this book. I don't need to become a better speaker because I don't want to progress in my career or I don't want to become a professional speaker. But they're kind of missing, missing the real point. And I talk about it in the last chapter. And that is when you become a better speaker, you become happier in the process.
0: Mm. Well, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Does, does do these um, techniques require open-mindedness? Because I can I can I can imagine that someone who is judgmental would have a very difficult time connecting with someone else.
1: Yes. So obviously, you're going to have conversations with people that you disagree with or that you don't like, and being open-minded to new experiences, to new conversations is incredibly important. And it's also important to be open-minded to new techniques. You know, we often get stuck in our little rut and we say, oh, no, I'm, I'm okay right here. I don't need to get any better. And that is also, you know, kind of a, a limiting factor. So being able to overcome those kind of biases and those ruts is incredibly important to become a better speaker because you need to have that open mind to go out and actually have those conversations, to give those presentations, and to be open to the things that I recommend uh, in the book, which can sometimes be difficult, uh, you know, especially if you're not willing to do so. Like anything else, if you you know, when people say they want to quit smoking, it has to be something they want to do. You can't tell someone else to quit; they have to decide on their own. And the same goes for becoming a better speaker. You have to want to get better, and you have to have an open mind to do so. Mm,
0: okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. What about coming, how we come off in um, interviews for jobs and things like that? What, um, how should we present ourselves in that way?
1: So with a job interview or any business interaction, we have to remember that at its core, it's a sale. You are selling something. In a job interview, you're selling yourself. You are saying, "I am the right person for the job." You know, "I have the skills necessary for this position." And you are selling yourself throughout each interview. So when you can think about it as a sale, you can then use sales techniques to increase your likelihood of moving to the next step and hopefully eventually getting an offer. So as you're going to an interview, you should think about it as a sales pitch. You are pitching yourself. You are the product. So when you can start to frame it in that way, it becomes a lot easier to highlight your skills, to talk about yourself in a way that is positive and makes you sound like the right candidate. So a lot of the training that, that I give around job interviews and business interactions is actually how to be a better salesperson. Because at its core, that's what we're trying to do. And many of us don't have that skill set already in place to make a a sale.
0: Yeah, I really admire people that have (laughs) that ability. So it is something that can be learned, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, I was not a a born uh, salesperson. Uh, I had, you know, I had the drive. Uh, for money, like so many other people, but it was uh, reading a lot of sales books and attending a lot of seminars to learn the techniques that work the best. And then also my own personal experience. There's a lot of stories and advice in the book that I developed myself, you know, after years and years of, of pitching myself for different products that I was selling. Um, and I came up with kind of my own distinct style. And that's so important in a sale is to have your own style, retain your own personality, because at the end of the day, that's, that's really what they're buying.
0: So when you're pitching, you don't want to just focus on yourself. It's, it's, I guess it's always important in any kind of um, situation, social situation, <clears throat> that you show interest in the other person or what they have to offer, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. So we wouldn't want to go into an interview and just go, I'm this and I'm that and I do this and I'm going to show you this and I'm going to give you this. We want to say, so, um, you know, do we say, tell us about tell us about your company or what I like about you? You you do your homework and you say what I like about your company is that you blah, blah, blah. Right.
1: Yes. So. You know, like any other selling process, it's about building and demonstrating the necessary attributes that the other person is looking for. So during an interview, when you're, you know, selling yourself, you want to have as much information about the other person as possible, about the company. And some ways you can do that is actually by asking strategic questions, so when you go into that interview, you probably looked at a job description, and there's going to be a bunch of skills in no particular order. So to discern what skills are of higher and lower importance, you can ask questions like, what does a typical day look like in this role? Or what does your ideal candidate's skill set look like? And when they answer those questions, you can cross-reference them to the job posting and actually figure out which ones are most important And it allows you to focus in on those instead of just saying, I'm great at all of these different things. You can focus in on the points that truly matter. And while they're describing those roles, they're actually building a better rapport with you because you have that conversation that's kind of moving back and forth. And you can ask them great questions like, what are some challenges that you're currently facing as a company? Let them elaborate on things that you couldn't just Google and, you know, you can have a real relationship with that other person, which builds rapport.
0: Okay. That's, that's really good advice. I'm sure there are things that we should not say. One of the um, issues that um, people who have suffered narcissistic abuse have is that they talk too much. They reveal too much. Um, because it's usually in defense mode, so they're trying to say that they didn't do something, and then they start up putting up, they start putting up a whole you know story about why they didn't do it, and they talk and they talk and they talk so there can you tell us the best way to i guess it would be different in different situations, but what are there what are some of the things we should not do?
1: Yeah, so in the, the situation you describe, that is a heightened emotional state, and oftentimes that creates that nervous energy, and we begin to overshare, and I call that committed an SWE, speaking well emotional. Emotion is incredibly important when speaking. You want to make sure that you have genuine emotion, but it can also control what you're saying which we don't want to happen. You want to be in control of what you reveal and when. And when we get emotional, we may say things that we don't really mean or things that we wouldn't have shared otherwise. So being able to control your emotional state is just as important as understanding what you're saying. So one way, one technique that I really like is talking to yourself in the third person. There's a very famous study that I reference in the book that actually shows that third-person self-talk is almost an effortless way to regulate your own emotions. So an example would be you're in a heightened emotional state, and you're about to yell at someone. Instead of just yelling at them, think in your own head, what would, you know, wh- why would Marcus yell at this person? Think about your actions as if they were someone else's. So third-person self-talk is just talking to yourself with your own name. So first person would be, why am I upset? And third person would be, why is Marcus upset? And by doing that in the third person, you think of your actions as if they were someone else's. So you're more critical. And you can begin to say, huh, Maybe I don't need to be so worked up, or maybe I shouldn't say that. When you start to think in in third person, it also begins to occupy your brain. When you're using that kind of cognitive gymnastics of thinking about yourself in the third person, you're focusing less on the heightened emotional situation in front of you. So you can begin to relax and think about your words more strategically. So I always recommend not, not committing an SWE because you can say things that you might regret later. And as we all know, you
0: can't take
1: words back.
0: So true. Should we pause when we feel emotional? <coughs> should, we, yes. should we always take so a pause? While you're, mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> yeah, while you're going through that, uh, you know, third person self-talk, it's okay to pause. We often think that pausing during a conversation, or worse yet, a speech, is some sort of cardinal sin. But I promise you it's not. Most people allow for normal silence in a conversation. You can take a pause. You can begin to calm yourself down. And as, uh, as a wise uh, sensei once said, open, uh, close mouths catch no feet. <laughs>
0: Love that. That's great. Oh, I love that. <clears throat> um, what's the difference between macro? Well, you have chapter sixteen: macro versus micro. What? What is that? What are you talking about? Yeah. You, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So there's different levels of conversation. A macro conversation is large format public speeches between you and ten to 10,000 people, maybe more, where you are the center of attention. It is on a macro scale. A micro conversation is those interpersonal interactions between one to five other people where it goes back and forth and you have that reciprocal. Think of chatting someone up at the coffee shop. That's a micro conversation. Now, Let's say you've got a presentation for work in front of the whole company. That's a macro conversation. And because the situation is different, the way you approach it should also be different because there's different levels of stress and there's different ways of communicating because of the different styles that you need to, to kind of bring in to that situation and the different rules that are at play.
0: And it's important to have energy in these, com- in these um, conversations, in these interactions, right? We don't want to be like <laughs> lethargic. It's important to have some energy, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, energy might be the,
1: the single most important thing in any conversation. Energy is what keeps it moving forward. It keeps the conversation alive. And it keeps the audience engaged, whether it's one person or it's 1,000 people. That energy is what continues the conversation forward. And most people think of energy as like excited energy, where you're kind of very loud and you're, and you're super happy and excited. But energy could also be crippling sadness. It could be joy. It could be uh, lethargic. It could be anger. Energy is everywhere in all of these different emotions. And by having the energy to convey those properly, you can continue the conversation moving forward. So being able to understand how you transfer that energy to other people is very important. Um, And I I talk about it a lot in the book of how you can begin to transfer that energy because that's kind of the goal. Of, of most conversations is to transfer that energy to the other person.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. That would, that would be, that would make sense. We, um, yeah. Cause people pick up on our, ener- on our energy even when they don't even realize it. So it's, yeah, we want to bring the best. What is the best way to um, engage an audience when you're first starting? So like, say you, you're up on the stage and ha- what's the best way to engage the people so that they get really excited about what's happening?
1: A great question. So right away, you want to enter confidently. How you start your speech is often how it will go for the duration. So entering confidently with your head held high, your shoulders and your back straight with a big smile on your face, that's going to immediately draw attention in. So you've got that confident as you walk on stage, and the second you pick up that microphone, whatever you're about to say should be interesting. So you want to start your speech on a confident, interesting note, just like you would with a book or a movie. How it starts is often going to give a look into the rest of your speech. So if you kind of walk up with your head low, you grab the mic and you say, Hi, I'm Marcus. Today I'm going to be talking about this. That's not going to get their attention. But if you walk in confidently, you start with a joke or you start with a really interesting question that brings their attention in right away. And while you're doing this, you want to be making eye contact. And a lot of times people think that eye contact in these large groups is not as important. But I would argue that it's almost more important. Because there's this sea of people in front of you, you need to build a relationship with each one of them. And you can do that through eye contact. So as you sweep the audience, stop, pause, look directly at someone. That brings them into the conversation, makes it feel more personal.
0: How long does it take for someone to learn how to do all this? I mean, it, you obviously did it, like you said, you did it over years, um, little by little. Um, do you do do you do you one-on-one um, education or, or, you know, Do you train people? Yes. Uh, So if if someone does want one-on-one
1: coaching, uh, they can reach out through my website, thespeechadvisor.com. So I do one-on-one. I do group training, company, and, uh, you know, large format conferences where I'll do an hour of of speaking on, you know, how to get better as a speaker. Uh, So that's one way that, that I try to help people. And the length of time that it takes varies. It all depends on your dedication, and it depends on the resources that you have available. For me, it took a long time because, number one, I was very young when I started this journey. So I didn't have the mental capacity to really understand these subjects on a deep level. I also didn't have the resources. I had to go and find books on my own. I had to kind of go and watch things by myself. So being able to have, you know, kind of a, a, a collection of stories and advice like my book will kind of jump you in the line. You'll, you'll get a head start right away. And then if you're dedicated, you can start to put these principles into practice fairly quickly. They're, they're tangible things that you can do right away. They're not those vague kind of pieces of advice like, oh, be confident. No, they're the actual real-world techniques that you can go out and start using today, and you'll feel the effects fairly quickly. And as you get more positive interactions, you're going to build that confidence. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get.
0: Well, that's really encouraging Um, because I think so many of us would like to be able to do that. I mean I know, you know, I could be speaking a lot more than I am, but I prefer not to because I get so nervous. <laughs> but um but, you know, listening to you, it's really it makes me very hopeful that I could change that. And what's um what's different about what you teach and what like Toastmasters would teach? What is the difference between that?
1: I try to be more personal. I obviously suffered from severe social anxiety as a kid and I still have a lot of anxiety today. And being able to understand where someone is coming from and understand the struggles, I think gives me a unique approach to overcoming it because I've been there. You know, a lot of people nothing nothing wrong with Toastmasters, but a lot of people who are in that organization They've always been very confident. They were, you know, kind of born ready to be professional speakers. So they, they may lack some of that same personal experience that I have. And I can relate to my, my clients a little bit more in that way. I also try okay. to back everything up with science. I'm all about evidence. I don't want just, oh, well, I did it one time and it worked for me. I want to know, What's actually happening on a scientific level that makes these tips valid, and I obviously reference dozens of scientific studies in in my book to back up my claims um, and I think that's the real differentiator
0: mm. yeah, that sounds like a much better way to do this and you know if you if you don't have that kind of background if you if you don't if you're not a speaker um, and you just want to tone it up, you know, but with you, you learn all of the aspects of how to do this. Marcus, it's truly amazing that where you came from and and where you are now. I mean, it's, I mean, you must look at it and think to yourself, I I would have never imagined this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. There are many times where I'm standing in front of a crowd and I go, what am I doing here? Why, <laughs> how did I get here? Um, and I, I, I tell some pretty funny stories in the book about moments just like that.
0: Is it good to tell stories when you're talking in front of, uh, of, of an audience?
1: Oh, 100%. A personal story is going to resonate with people way more than kind of a generic example a story allows them to connect with you. They feel like they know you a little bit more, and they might be able to relate to it. And now you have something in common, and every relationship is built on common ground. So being able to relate to other people through stories, I think it is an incredibly powerful conversation tool, and it's something that we all love to listen to as well. I love to tell stories pretty much as much as I like to listen to them. Because you get to learn, you get to go on that that ride, or even just a little bit with that other person.
0: Is vulnerability something that we want to show at all? I mean, because I know we want to come off confident, but does vulnerability come into this at all?
1: Yes. So vulnerability is part of being human. And there's, again, another very prevalent psychological phenomenon called the Prattfall effect. And the Prattfall effect says that when you make a mistake, it humanizes you in the other person's eyes and actually makes you more likable. So by making a mistake, it actually makes you more likable. So when you have a little, a little mistake, you, you trip a little bit. Oftentimes in social situations, you'll see that the other people, they don't judge you. They'll laugh. But it makes you more connected to them because they realize, oh, they also are a human. They also make mistakes. They are vulnerable. So when you open up, when you have those real conversations, you build deeper connections than you could ever if you build up this wall. People kind of have the fallacy that confidence is that impenetrable kind of dark and brooding. They're standing in the corner and, you know, no one really knows too much about them. But I would argue that true confidence is the ability to not care when those things happen, when small mistakes, when you're vulnerable. That's really the true root of confidence. I mess up all the time. And I will call it out in front of hundreds of people. But I own it. And that makes me even more confident to those individuals because they say, wow, it takes real confidence to admit that you made a mistake.
0: Yes, it does. But I think, you know, I use vulnerability a lot in in my work because I think it really helps people when they feel like they're not alone in their situation and they feel like I really get it. Um, So I share a lot of personal things. I mean, not deeply personal, but personal things that I think would be relatable to them. Um, And also I do this, you know, on my podcast because I, I do think that that makes people relate to you better, that you're more human, exactly what you said. Um, So we're talking about your book, Don't Shut Up, (laughs) a collection of stories and advice on how to overcome social anxiety. Um, Marcus, is there anything else you want to tell us about your book or about your work?
1: I mean, I like to leave everyone kind of on the same thought, which is anyone can overcome their social anxiety. And at any level they desire. You don't have to go and become a professional speaker like I did. But even overcoming it on a small level can have some profound effects on your life. And I want everyone to understand that they have the ability within themselves because as you do, you will become a more happy, fulfilled person in the process and become more connected with the people around you which I think right now is more important than ever.
0: Oh, yes, it is. There's, um, I live in a neighborhood, and there's a lot of kids. And sometimes I walk in the morning, and there's like 50 kids between two different bus stops uh, that are getting, you know, waiting to be picked up for school. And there's no communication whatsoever. Everyone is looking at their phone. And I think back to the time when I was a child waiting for the bus. And that was such a fun time because that's when we talk to each other and we catch up. So, yes, social interaction is really important now. Yeah, I agree with you.
1: Exactly. So that's my advice. Even if you just do it on a small level, Mm -hmm. when you open up to the people around you, your, your life becomes exponentially better.
0: Yes. Wow. This is so, this was really, really amazing, Marcus. Um, Thank you for sharing all this with us. And um, I encourage all of you to pick up a copy of Don't Shut Up um, and and dive in and start seeing where you can improve the way that you communicate with other people. Um, And if you are looking to do more, you know, if you want to be a speaker or something like that, Marcus is your man. (laughs) So um, I thank you so much. This was really wonderful.
1: Well, thank you so much for for having me on. The book is out now. It's available on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, and Kindle. Um, So if you want to pick up a copy, uh, I appreciate everyone who does so.
0: Okay. Well, we'll promote that. Thank you again, and have a wonderful day.
1: You as well.
0: Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com. And be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.